Good morning. Uh, let's go to the next one here. There we go. We're doing uh, the book of Luke together. Um, as we come to hear the voice of Jesus in the Bible here, uh, how about we pray that we listen really well? Because uh, he's always worth listening to. It's worth saying, isn't it? Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus teaches his people um, and keeps te- teaching us today through, uh, through your word here in the Bible. Thanks that we have his words written down and recorded for us. Please help us to be attentive to his voice today. I pray that as we hear his call to discipleship, we'll listen and heed it and be changed by it. And so we want to ask for the help of your spirit to change us, knowing that uh, left to ourselves, it is so very easy to turn aside from your way. So please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. And now Christians, we talk about beliefs a lot, don't we? Yeah? We talk about beliefs a lot, I think. Um, that means thinking through who God is, think about what he's done, think about what it means for us and that sort of thing. It's all good stuff. You use our brains a lot. Um, that's the way God meant it to be. That's why he gave us them to us. Um, the thing I want to say today, though, is people don't just think beliefs. Um, people live beliefs as well. You have lived beliefs and you have thought out beliefs and they don't always line up. And not having a go at anybody in saying that, um, everybody's lived beliefs and thought out beliefs don't line up. Uh, it's just about how much that matters and uh, on, on different topics. And, uh, yeah, we'll get into it. Um, I want to give you an example of that. Um, a lot of office workers today um, have this struggle. Um, a lot of office workers will say that they value productivity in their work above all else in the workplace, something that's very valuable to them, and they'll say it out loud. Um, however, statistics are showing that um, a lot of the same people check their email and Facebook uh, 12 times an hour, like, you know, a lot, uh, and just fritter away minutes individually. They live out frittering away minutes on Facebook and on just little email messages, and product- productivity goes down a lot. It's actually a big issue for a lot of people. Um, it's not that they're being hypocrites. They don't intend to do that. But their felt need at any particular moment is, oh, I'll only take a second, that's important, I'll just check that that hasn't got back to me, and so, and so on. And so productivity, their stated belief... Uh, very easily gets diminished, even though they say they value it a great deal. Um, It's very, very easy to be idealistic people, isn't it? As in people who say, I believe this great ideal, I believe in productivity, and I live productivity in my workplace. Uh, And it's only by examining your beliefs and how you actually live and noticing, actually, the way I'm acting doesn't seem to line up with what I've said I value so much. It's only by examining things and labelling them that you can actually change them. I'll give you another example. Um, a lot of Australians say that they believe uh, in the importance of family above all else. Right? I, I live for my family. My family is the most important thing in the world to me. Um, however, a lot of people who will say that work 80 hours a week or more and don't see their family. Um, and it's not that they intend to do that. They, still, they do value their family. They're saying what they actually feel in their heart. But when they live it out, they're actually living by felt needs that they haven't identified to themselves yet. Um, I feel the need for recognition in my workplace. I feel the need to get a promotion. I feel the need to earn some more money. And those needs, those felt needs, actually determine their behaviour more than the thing that they hold so dear. You see how it works? Lived beliefs and, 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 and your thought-out beliefs, they, they're often in contradiction. And it isn't because they set out to do that, people set out to do that. It's just that our actions day by day, moment by moment, are dictated by different things, fulfilment of felt needs rather than what we say we believe. I'm utterly devoted to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So easy to say. Um, 
but actual day-to-day decisions, moment-by-moment decisions that I make, uh, if I don't examine them, well, a lot of them are really just dictated by trying to feel slightly happier, slightly more comfortable, wanting a bit more recognition from peers, that sort of stuff. And it's only by examining how I'm actually living, where I'm spending my time, where I'm spending my talents, my treasure, we'll get to that, uh, that I can hope to change them. Now, we have a, a New Life Anglican Church brochure that talks about our vision, our mission, and it talks about some values we have, and then some of these big ideals, lofty ideals that are easy to say and harder to actually match up with your life. Um, here's one of them. One of our values as a church is we long to be an adventurous followers of Jesus because we have a great God If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you, empowering you to live new life for Jesus. We have the kingdom of God guaranteed in our future forever. We think that frees us up to be very adventurous in how we live now. Because the resources we have at our disposal, we can afford to use for God and his kingdom. Because we're not just living for now. Now isn't all we've got. We've got this great kingdom ahead of us. And so we reckon it frees us up to serve Jesus in a bunch of ways our society will make think is nuts, basically. But if it's just a stated value, it's pretty worthless. And so we try and bring it down more practical. Here's a question. How is the kingdom shaping your time, talents, and treasure? If you've been around for a while, you've probably heard that. But just think about it for a moment. It's not a lofty ideal. Uh, You can't separate it from the way you actually live and just say it, can you? Because it's actually asking you to examine the practical thing, your lived belief, and says, no, 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 look at where you actually spend your time now. How do you spend your time now? Look at where you actually spend your talents. God's given you abilities and gifts. Where do you spend those things? Where do you put that energy? Your treasure. Yes, your wallet. What's your bank statement say you're spending your money on? How is the kingdom of God shaping your time, talents and treasure? It's a lived belief question. I live for the kingdom of God. Well, how is the kingdom of God shaping your time, talents and treasure? And it's only by honestly examining those things. And I think for me, I'm sure for you, examining those things constantly, very regularly, that uh, I can hope to say honestly that I live for the kingdom of God and I'm still working on it and I'm sure if you're a follower of Jesus, you are too. This is the kind of thing Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter, I think we're doing 11 to, I hope I, I should get it right, hey, Luke chapter 11 and 12, we're doing bits out of that, um, he's had a lot of things, but he's talking about this kind of thing, how is the kingdom of God shaping your time, talents and treasure? Um, Jesus is on his way in this part of Luke to Jerusalem where he will die for the sins of the world and offer salvation to everybody who trusts in him. As he goes, he teaches his disciples what it means to live for the kingdom of God. Um, If you've seen this diagram before, I think it's helpful. Um, That's just a map of what we mean by the kingdom of God. It's a timeline um, on the... There's a laser pointer here. On the left-hand side uh, is where we live now. We live in a world that's characterised by sin and death and it's under God's judgement. But there'll come a time in history, this line where Jesus returns and brings about his kingdom, where there is no death, where there is no sin and where his people will uh, enjoy eternal, satisfying life forever. It's life lived under God's rule, the way we were designed to live. And that means what we live for isn't for today. It's a future thing. What we want isn't today. It's entirely future. And that future should shape our priorities in everything we do in the here and now. And that that thread, that idea, goes all through this part of Luke's Gospel. So turn to chapter 11 there, and we'll look at the first thing in our, our first reading that Jesus taught. His disciples wanted to know what to pray about, how to pray. And so Jesus teaches them what to pray about. He t- 
by the way, when you hear somebody pray, you hear what actually matters to them, don't you? Um, I don't ask God for stuff that I don't want. And I don't think to ask for something, to pray for it, to put the time into praying for something unless I really want it. When you say, what does somebody pray for? I think what you're asking is, what matters to them most? What's, what's really high up on the agenda? And so what Jesus is teaching here in the Lord's Prayer, as we call it, is the priorities of disciples. Luke 11, chapter, uh, Luke 11 verse 2, he said to them, When you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. A couple of things. Um, I don't think Jesus is teaching them to pray this prayer verbatim. It's not a bad thing to do. Praying it as we did a minute ago is a wonderful thing to do because Jesus taught us this prayer and it sums up Christian priorities in a, in a wonderful way that is just worth repeating. However, he isn't saying whenever you pray, just pray these words just like this. How do I know that? Uh, because the New Testament is full of prayers. Jesus' followers pray prayers all through the books and this prayer is never repeated. Uh, however... The content of this prayer is repeated everywhere. The things that Jesus teaches them to care about in this prayer are repeated everywhere. It drives all the prayers of the New Testament. What are the things in the prayer? It's that God would be glorified and his kingdom would come so that God would be glorified. That's what Jesus teaches his disciples to care about. They should want above all else for the kingdom of God to come in which God is honoured. I'm sure if there's somebody you care about, whose name is being slandered, that you will be jealous for their reputation. I'm sure that's true. I'm sure you'd want to long for a day where they'd be vindicated and shown that those things are not true. And that's what Christians want of God. Because if you love God and you love God's reputation, you're going to pray, God, please hallow your name. Make people see who you are for real. Don't let people slander you. And where's that happen? Well, when the kingdom of God comes, your kingdom come is the central thing he teaches them to pray. And the other little things at the end there fit in with basically that central idea. Please bring your kingdom now because uh, what, what's he saying? Bring each day our daily bread. Bring it, give us a provision daily as we wait for the kingdom. Forgive us our sins because they'll keep us out of the kingdom. Lead us not into temptation. Well, we want God's name to be hallowed. Please lead me away from doing anything that would dishonor you. See, it's all centred on God's glory and God's kingdom. That's what Christians should care about. The contrast makes it clearer, I think. Um, So often, it is really, really easy to pray just for stuff now, isn't it? Even if we're praying for other people, we pray for stuff for them now. um, And it's orientated towards now. Please give them a better job, better health. Um, Please help them feel more comfortable now, uh, deal with this problem now. It's all now-orientated. That, that's not a Christian perspective, though. That's not Christian prayer. Christian prayer is primarily di- dictated by the thing we're looking for in the future. It's dictated by that age-to-come thing. Because if we're convinced that's better, that's where we'll direct our prayers towards. So here's some kingdom of God prayers. Praying for your friends to become Christians so they can be part of that kingdom. That's a kingdom of God prayer. Uh, it's, we should really care about that if we have understood anything about what Jesus was on about. Uh, for the encouragement of growth of your Christian family, for your kids to be mature followers of Jesus, um, for the Christian gospel to get a clear voice in the secular media so other people can hear the the words of Jesus and consider them. Those are really kingdom-orientated prayers. And it's not about the specifics that matter so much. It's about the desires, the priorities, the priority in our prayers. It's forward-looking. It's kingdom of God 
coming. It's God-glorifying prayers. That's what Jesus is teaching us to, uh, to pray for. So there's the first thing Jesus wants to ask us. How's the kingdom of God shaping the things you ask God for? Is it right in the middle? Of course, if you care about anything, pray for it. But it's a question of balance, right? Uh, a priority overall. Is it kingdom of God, God's honour? Now Jesus, when he teaches, and when I repeat what Jesus teaches, sounds a bit extreme. Uh, it sounds extreme to our modern sensibilities. Partly that's because of sin. Partly that's because we naturally want to turn away from God and just hold back from him, basically. Um, Partly it's also because we've been influenced by Queen Elizabeth I-style moderate Anglicanism, uh, which is basically teaching that moderation is a great virtue and we should all strive after it. Uh, Moderation, think about it, moderation is treated as a good thing. Moderation, it's uh, not being too extreme or serious about your devotion to Jesus. Let's be a bit safer than that, a bit less eager for it to impact your life and your work and all those sorts of things. A bit closer to the middle's best. Um, And, and of course, since 9-11, everybody wants to avoid being an extremist of any type, don't they? It doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you put the word moderate in front of it. Oh, extreme Islam. No, moderate Islam. That's friendly. That's safe. Extreme Christianity. Oh, no, people that believe the Bible. Moderate Christianity. You know, a bit closer to us. A bit closer to not thinking it'll make a difference to real life. It's nice that you're a Christian. Just make sure your enthusiasm doesn't spill into, you know, trying to change us or expecting your life to look different or anything like that. Um, in fact, the Bible teaches us that uh, Christians should look extreme, uh, and it uses extreme language all the time. Listen to Titus chapter 2. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, all sin, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, really eager. They just desire to do good works, enthusiastic about good works. That's not moderate. Moderate isn't a Christian virtue. Romans chapter 12, look at all the extreme language. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Just hate it. There's nothing good about it. Hate evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. Don't ever be moderate. Always be zealous about your God. But keep keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. They're all very extreme words, aren't they? It's not the middle ground somewhere in between. That's not what Jesus is about. And in fact, in this passage, Jesus teaches that being moderate is actually the most dangerous position of all. Um, A lot of people like moderate anything because it seems like the safe thing. It's in between everything. Jesus teaches it's actually the really dangerous position, and here's why. There's a man standing on a boat. He's got one leg on a boat. He's got one leg on a wharf. And he's in the most dangerous position in that picture. Because those two things, those two objects are going to move away from each other and he better choose a side. We saw Jean-Claude Van Damme stand between two Volvo trucks. Uh, Good on you, mate. How long can you keep that up is my question. And that's Jesus' question because you can't keep that up. In fact, what you can't see, it's a real stunt. He actually did that. I think it was one take. Um, What you can't see... Uh, well, what you can't see is there's a bunch of nets that will spring into action if there's any, any problem or if he gets a leg cramp. They were actually worried about get him getting a leg cramp because that can happen, um, even to you know, great athletes and so on. Um, and he'd be in a really, really dangerous position when that happens. And he can't maintain that very long, I imagine. I don't care how awesome an action hero he is. Uh, he can't maintain that. It's the dangerous position standing between. How sustainable is that? Not sustainable at all, especially if the trucks move apart a little more.
Trying to have life in the middle doesn't work, is what Jesus is going to teach here. He makes the point in a really unusual way, to our ears at least. Turn to chapter 11, verse 21. We'll just skip a bit and move down to verse 21. And Jesus teaches them about demon possession. <laughs> Jesus is casting out demons. You see, when you see Jesus in the Gospels, there's a battle going on, well, a war. It's a bigger, bigger than just one battle. The war is between the kingdom of Satan in this world versus the kingdom of God and the world of the age to come. Jesus is representing the world of the age to come, God's kingdom. And there's a war between them, and Jesus keeps casting demons away wherever he goes, just effortlessly, just sends them away. And uh, if you look at verse 21, here's Jesus' interpretation of what's going on. He says, when a strong man comes fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Jesus is the stronger man. He turns up, ties up Satan, and plunders his people out of the world and into his kingdom. And you have to choose a side, that means. Verse 23, forces a choice. Whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's a choice there. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, he's the danger of being moderate. It goes through arid places seeking rest, and it doesn't find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left, to the person I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. The moderate person is a blank canvas. And when it comes to demon possession, uh, people who a demon leaves a person and goes, well, they're still empty. The Spirit of God hasn't filled that person. They haven't jumped on board with Jesus. We'll just go and fill it again. It's empty. Moderate ground is the easiest ground for Satan to attempt and to, to, to have his way with. It's the most dangerous position to be in. So Jesus forces a choice. He warns them that there's a choice. Choose this world or the kingdom of God. And beware trying to stand in the middle with your legs stretched out over the two because it just won't work. It's unsustainable for lots of reasons. Come down to chapter 12, verse 13. We're skipping a bunch of other stuff. It's all really important, but you don't want me to preach for an hour and a half, so I won't. Turn to chapter 12, verse 13. Um, and Jesus teaching, teaches how living for the kingdom of God um, looks, the difference it makes with, the, with our time, talents, and treasure. Jesus was teaching his disciples in the passage before some really important stuff about the kingdom of God and eternal life and, and this sort of thing and how to be part of it and how to face persecution well. Some really important topics. And he was interrupted. Not by kids crying, which is, is fine to be interrupted by. He was interrupted by something far worse. He was interrupted by a guy who wanted money. Not from Jesus. He just wanted Jesus to make sure he got his money. Uh, Teacher, tell my brother to split our father's inheritance with me. Uh, he wanted money. He doesn't say whether it was right. doesn't say whether it was wrong. Jesus doesn't care. Uh, it, it wasn't on his agenda. And he refuses to get involved with such a trivial issue when he's talking about eternity with people. So he turns to the crowd and he warns them. And we need to hear this warning because this is more true of our society, far more true of our society than of his. Verse 15, it says, Then he said to them, Watch out. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Jesus' warning is really, really strong. 
You can read it and not really get the sense of how strong it is. It's not, hey, you should really watch that. It's kind of dangerous. It's, watch out, a bus is about to hit you and you are about to die, is kind of watch out, is what he's saying. It's really emphatic. Watch out. Greed is going to kill you people, is what he's saying. Seeing people more concerned with money than knowing God. And what's greed? Greed is, well, it's spelt M-O-R-E, is how greed is spelt. It's spelt more. Greed is the desire to want more and more and more, and whichever situation you're in now, you want more. And Jesus warns against all kinds of greed. So more money, more stuff, better stuff, better position or promotion, wanting more recognition, wanting more for your children. Uh, Often wanting more for your children is a great way to cover up greed, isn't it? It's not for me, it's just for my kids. They need that, and they need me to live in an enormous mansion because they need it. You know, it can be a great cover-up for greed, our kids. And Jesus says, beware of every form of wanting more, more, more. It'll kill you. Really stern warning. And the reason is because it's trying to create the kingdom of God on earth now for us rather than waiting for God to give it to us in the age to come. Because you've got to choose between the two. You can't stand between the trucks. Here's the story he tells, and it's a a great little story. Um, He tells a story about a farmer who was very, very wealthy. Uh, He was hardworking. People considered him blessed by God because he had a lot of stuff. Uh, One year he planted his crops and his fields produced more than he could ever hope for. And being a shrewd entrepreneur and businessman, he tore down his barns. He built bigger, massive barns to replace them, stored all the grain in it, and retired at age 40. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Uh, in fact, what a good moral lesson. Work hard and God will bless you and you can rest. You know, it's, you, could, you could easily preach it that way. But then a new character enters the story and that's God. And God says to him, you're an idiot. You won't find too many passages where God uses the word idiot, but he uses it here, or fool. You idiot. Verse 20, this very night your life will be demanded from you then you'll get what you've prepared for yourself. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Sorry. This clever investor hadn't given a moment's thought to where he stood with God. He thought, I've got all I need for the rest of my life, and he didn't realise, of course, that the rest of his life was another eight hours. God says, that's so fully foolish. Where did he go wrong? Uh, there's a word that's repeated throughout the parable. I'll read the parable to you, uh, emphasising a particular word that gets repeated over and over again. It's slightly clearer in Greek that they repeat this word like the language it was written in. Um, so look at verse 16, and I'll read it with particular emphasis. Uh, and Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down bar. Oh, sorry. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain and I'll say to myself, look, he's even talking to himself. You you could literally uh, translate it. I'll say to my soul, soul, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take like it easy, eat, drink and be merry. You get the point. Uh, He's pretty self-absorbed and it's pretty clear who he's doing it all for. Wealth fell in his lap and he used it entirely for himself and didn't think about God. Now, here's the thing we have to think about. Um, At present, depending how you measure it, Australia is either the richest or the second richest country in the world, as in Australian citizens. It depends whether you do it by, what was it, median wealth or average wealth. John Anderson told us the other day at Men's Convention. Uh, I think Switzerland's citizens, was it Switzerland? Yeah. They're richer than us on one of those scales. 
but we're second richest in either median or average wealth. I can't remember which, but either way, we're very rich. Far more rich than the people in this passage. And how does Australia use its wealth? Uh, Best life now. You only live once, after all, and so it's very, very easy to live like the foolish farmer in this country. The way to live like the foolish farmer in this country is live in Australia, copy everyone else. That's it. That's, that's all you need to do. I'm going to work really hard and get a nice big house and tie myself up in massive amounts of works for the next few decades so I can pay it off and make a good lifestyle for myself. And God says that's a really foolish investment. It's so temporary, we don't know when it'll end. And regardless of what we say we believe and what we think we believe about our hope in the kingdom of God, it's very easy to have the lived belief that we're living for this world. And that's a really, really bad investment. Um, By most people's reckoning, the richest man in history uh, was a guy called John D. Rockefeller. uh, In the early 1900s, he owned 90% of American oil. Uh, By today's standards, he was worth about $330 billion, which is three times what Bill Gates is worth. So this... Billion. Yeah, that's what I said. I didn't say million. I'm sure I pronounced a B then. It was definitely billion. Million isn't that much on these scales. Uh, It's three times Bill Gates' wealth. Uh, When he died in 1937, and by the way, he he was a Baptist. I think he was a Christian, and he tithed his wealth. Um, Interesting to be part of his church. When he died in 1937... His accountant was asked the the question everyone wanted to know. How much did John D. leave? And his accountant replied, well, he left all of it. He left all of it. It's the question everybody wanted to know the answer to. The man in the parable died and he left all of it. He failed to use his wealth well. And because he didn't recognize God, this is what we're getting to, he failed to invest well. God wants us to be smart investors. The, verse, the, the, the point is in verse 21 of the parable. He says, Jesus says, This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. People are naturally rich towards themselves. What that means is we use our wealth, our time, time talents and treasure, to serve our own priorities and concerns and kingdoms rather than God's. Rich towards ourselves. And God says, Jesus says, This is how it will be for everyone who stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God's priorities, God's kingdom, what God is on about. It's the time, talents, treasure question again. How is the kingdom shaping your time, talents, and treasure? And that guy would honestly have to say, I haven't thought about it that way. It's not. I'm not thinking about those things. And if you read the parable carefully, you'll notice it doesn't talk about what the guy says he believes anyway. It's talking about his lived belief, what, what on the ground it actually looked like. And so it's so easy to fall into living exactly that way, even if you say you believe the kingdom of God is the most important thing in the world, and so we fall back into moderate Christianity and we've got a foot on each truck again, and it's unsustainable and dangerous. Jesus says, watch out, greed will kill you people. The solution isn't to work out how much less we spend on ourselves, for example. It's to stop, stop focusing on this world, stop focusing on how much we spend on ourselves, and focus on the kingdom of God instead. Set your eyesight not on yourself and this world anymore. Set your eyesight, look at something different. Stop focusing on the thing you're trying to get rid of and focus on the alternative instead. Focus on the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, forget about pursuing food, drink, clothing, because you're getting those things anyway. Forget about pursuing wealth. Pursue the kingdom of God instead. That's what means to be rich towards God. Now, I reckon when we talk about that stuff, uh, it's very natural to feel very anxious. 
uh, which is interesting because Jesus is about to go the opposite way. Um, I think it leads to anxiety, thinking about this, because we're trying to add the kingdom of God priorities to our already busy schedule, aren't we? Uh, you know, God, Jesus has given me a few more things to add to the list, a few more things I have to care about. And Jesus is saying, stop trying to put a foot on the truck. Just change trucks. <laughs> Replace something. Replace your personal kingdom and your desires with the kingdom of God because God's going to look after you anyway and he's freed you up to look to the kingdom instead. Christians can be adventurously devoted to the kingdom of God because God promises to f- provide all that we need as we do that. Have a look and you'll see it in the passage from verse 22. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you'll wear. For life is more cl- than food, and the body's more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they don't sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you can't do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his splendor was not dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Do not set your heart. Here's the alternative thing. Do not set your heart at all on what you'll eat or drink. Don't worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things and your father knows you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Jesus promises that God will give us what we need as we seek the kingdom. Define the word need very carefully. (laughs) What we say we need isn't necessarily what we need. You know, an Australian child needs new toys. Don't they? I need it. I need new toys. I need that thing on the commercial. I mean, Australian citizens, what do we need? Well, we need a good, stimulating job with an above-average income, a lavish house, two cars, communication, entertainment, and so on and so forth. Jesus talks about need. He says four things. You need food, you need drink, you need clothing, and you need, need, need the kingdom of God. And he says, pursue the kingdom of God, and I'll make sure that you get the food, the drink, and the clothing while you do it. That's what he's teaching in this passage. Other things beyond those things are nice, they're good, they're not evil. Having a house isn't evil, but it is in the luxury category. It isn't in the necessity category, is what Jesus is teaching. And what that means is, the Lord Jesus forbids us from considering a house a necessity, for example. Food, drink, clothing in the kingdom of God, because he doesn't promise that we'll hold on to those things in this age. Because what we care about isn't this age, it's the age to come. Remember what he was teaching? So he teaches us instead to be content with what we have. Content with possessing the kingdom of God. Yeah, I think I can be content with that when I think about what it is. Be content with that and trust in God to provide the things we need as we wait for it to arrive. Have a look at 1 Timothy 6 on the screen. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Thanks for wearing clothes today, folks. I'm glad you can afford clothes. I take it you're not going to skip a meal today. If you, if you do, and if you're struggling in that way, then we, the church, can help you. That's part of how God does provide for his people. But the point is, you have all you need to be content now if you're trusting in Jesus and you've got the kingdom of God because you've got the other things and you can trust in God to provide them for you and you have all you need for your future. And if you can see life that way, then all kinds of anxieties that plague our society will gradually disappear. 
they will. It's easy to say that really flippantly, but that's what Jesus is saying. The kinds of anxieties that plague our society should evaporate. You see, the more you expect out of this life, the more capacity you've given yourself to be disappointed and stressed. It's all good and well to say, I want to have a certain lifestyle, and then you have to put the work into maintaining that no matter what, don't you? You have to achieve that and you need to maintain it. And life gets so tightly wound up that we can't afford for people to get sick. We can't afford to lose a job or to fail to gain a promotion or whatever because my personal universe is tied up in all the things I am doing to provide heaven and earth now. Jesus' way is better because that's a massive amount of anxiety that people carry around. Can't afford for anything to change. Can't afford for money to not work. Be content with what you have. And use the excess to serve his kingdom is what Jesus is teaching. This really struck me, saying it like this. So simple. The way, way to get rid of worldly worries is to stop being so concerned about worldly things. It's so simple, isn't it, to, to say. The way to get rid of worldly worries is to stop being so concerned about worldly things. Or to say it the negative way, uh, we'll never be free from the worries of this world until we stop worrying about the things of this world. That's what Jesus is teaching. And I can guarantee you, a million years into life in the eternal kingdom of God, nobody is going to regret the things they gave up for the sake of the kingdom of God in the here and now. Nobody. You're not going to think about that. I don't know, but maybe you'll regret not investing more wisely though, which is the next thing Jesus talks about. Jesus offers you an investment opportunity better than anything you've ever been offered before. And this just struck me the other day I was reading it. I just forgot this was in the Bible, and it's amazing. Look at verse 32 to 34. It says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Don't be afraid, because your future's certain. So, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Look at the outcome of that. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief ever comes and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, what's your plan for financial security in the future? Jesus is going to talk finance with us. What's your plan for financial security? It struck me as I read this, Jesus doesn't want us to actually make dumb financial decisions. That's not what he's offering. Uh, What he offers is, look reality in the face and make the smartest, wisest, most shrewd financial decisions you can possibly make. Do you believe in the kingdom of God? Do you believe it's real and eternal? Well, let me give you a chance, Jesus says, to trade in your funny little plastic money into something that will last forever. That's what he says, isn't it? Verse 33. It'll never wear out. Get yourself a treasure in heaven that'll never fail by giving to the poor. Think about it like this. I don't have $100 on me, but if I did, I'd place it on the stage and I'd say, okay, if you want that, come and, come and get it. Um, here's my offer. You can have it right now. Or you can come back in a year and I'll, instead of giving you $100, I'll give you $100 million. Is anybody going to take the $100 now? Unless you desperately, desperately need it. Like if it's the difference between life and death, you probably take it, right? I'm not touching that $100. Uh, I can forgo that very easily. Jesus is saying, invest smarter. And we're in a position to do that. Do you have food, clothing, and the kingdom of God? Yes, well, you've got a lot beyond that. Be smart with it. Give it eternal significance. There was a, uh, a missionary called Jim Elliot, and this was a saying he lived by. It's quite a famous quote. might have heard it before. He says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep 
to gain what he cannot lose. The world looks at that statement and thinks that's stupid. But I want to say that is said by a man who had more money smarts than anyone on Wall Street. Doesn't he? It's foolish to hold on to stuff you can't keep to gain if you're gonna you can stand to gain what you can't lose. If you can trade it in for something you can't lose that's immensely more valuable. And so Jim Elliott invested his life in giving what he didn't need and he couldn't keep anyway into serving other people. That's a seriously shrewd, clever investor. He knows how to spend a dollar. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, here's the point. God doesn't provide us with excess so it can be stored up for our financial security in the here and now. He provides excess so we can share it with others who need it. And so he has the great pleasure and privilege of rewarding us beyond what we deserve in the age to come. The last thing is really important too because it helps us get on with the business of being generous. Verse 34 says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It goes both ways, this statement. Um, Jesus is saying, show me your bank statement, show me your credit card statement, show me your cash receipts. I'll look at those and then I'll tell you where your heart actually is. I'll tell you what your lived belief, where your heart actually is. Not just what you say you believe. Because your lived belief is where you actually spend your money. That's what you think is important for money. But here's good news. It works the opposite way too. Some people say, I've heard people say, I really wish I had a heart for overseas mission, uh, mission work. And Jesus offers people to develop a way to develop that heart. It's really easy. Start putting money into overseas mission work. Because where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. So start investing in it. Start pouring your resources into things that you wish you had a heart for and I think you'll find you'll develop a heart for it. You wish you had a heart for kids' ministry? Well, why not invest a bunch of your time, talents and treasure into kids' ministry? The more of yourself you put into that, the more you will value it. You can actually change your desires, change the things that you care about because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so that means change doesn't wait until we feel like it. It just changes when your head goes, I really should change this. I'm going to invest more wisely. And you do it, and your heart gradually can change. Uh, I, I don't have time for any more specific application here. I just want to say, though, this whole thing and living a lifestyle that looks this way in general, what it will mean is that we'll live more frugally than those around us, um, is the bottom line, uh, because we'll be investing in different ways. Now, I'd love you uh, sometime today to read the rest of chapter 12, verse 35 to, not the rest of chapter 12, 35 to 48. Because Jesus finishes uh, talking about money and waiting for the kingdom of God well with a story about waiting for the kingdom of God well. And I'm not going to read it now because we don't have time. But the point is, the kingdom of God, we've been waiting for it for a long time. And waiting for it can be hard work. It can be easy to turn aside. God gives us resources to serve the kingdom. It can be easy to just sort of forget about looking forward to the kingdom of God and use it for the here and now. And Jesus urges us to be servants who look at the resources that God's put into our hands and to use it well and to wait well and to make sure that when Jesus returns, he finds us waiting for him and not pursuing anything but the kingdom of God. Have a look at the end of it and you'll see the point at verse 1248. Um, The first half won't make sense without the parable, but the second half, the sentence there, it says, Jesus says, from everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. You better believe we'd be given much, uh, as I said before. 
and this is the Lord's words to us as people who have been given much, he expects us as his servants to use it well and to use it much for the kingdom of God because we have much to share. So what I'd like you to do is to sit down and ask the live to believe question. How's the kingdom shaping your time, talents and treasure? Not how would you like it to, that's the next question. That's a good question too. How is it at the moment? And how can I shift to what I want it to be? Because the Holy Spirit, uh, among other things, enables us to live more and more God's way. So how about I uh, pray that God would help us uh, think about how to do that individually with what we have. Loving Heavenly Father, um, we uh, thank you so much that we have such a kingdom before us as the kingdom of God. Thank you that we have so much to look forward to. Um, We confess it's very easy to not live like we're waiting for that kingdom. And we want to help ask you to help us to repent of that. Please, by your spirit, work in us so strongly and so powerfully that our hearts will change and we'll want things differently. We won't be infatuated with the things we see around us, but we'll trust in your fatherly care of us for the things we do need. Food, drink, clothing, and most of all, the kingdom of God. Thank you so much that you promised to provide those things to us. Please help us to genuinely see the other things we've got as luxuries that are good things, but they can be invested better. And please give us the strength and will to invest those things better and to serve you really, really well. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.